Hey, Father, thank you so much for this day. Uh, thank you for all these guys in the room, Lord. And as we uh, uh, close out school year and uh, uh, many folks are um, celebrating a, a son or a daughter or a grandson or a granddaughter's uh, graduation, I pray that uh, whatever the travel plans are, that we would be, um, we would be protected and safe uh, by you, God. We do pray for uh, every one of those young men and women that walked across the stage Sunday um, that uh, your hand would be on them. Thank you for our student ministry uh, that is making such an impact on kids' lives, uh, preparing them for the next step and the next stage in their life. And so, God, as we look in your word today, let us as men uh, continue to, uh, um, to try to be uh, uh, who you want us to be, where you want us to be in our families, in our churches, in our lives, in our places of service, uh, at the offices uh, as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you're relatively new uh, uh, here, we have been moving through our five pillars of biblical manhood. Uh, we're looking at all five pillars. They have come from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, verse 13 and 14. And uh, let me just read them to you, and I'll just give you these five pillars. Number one, uh, the Apostle Paul told the Corinthian believers, be on your guard. That was pillar number one. We did that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, if you missed it, you can find it online. Uh, then secondly, we looked at the idea of stand firm in your faith. So be on your guard, first of all, stand firm in your faith. Then next, we looked at be courageous, be courageous. As men, uh, we've got to be courageous at times. And then we looked at uh, be strong, so be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, and be strong. And then today, we're going to look at the fifth and last one, uh, which is this. Do everything in love. Do everything in love. So, in other words, if you're going to be on your guard, be on your guard in love. Stand firm in your faith, but do it in love. Be courageous, uh, but do it in love. And be strong. Do it in love. You know, we're, we're oftentimes, as men, put together, we're built, our DNA uh, is uh, sometimes we're better off at just being strong and being courageous and standing firm uh, and being strong and all of those things. But to do something in love, that's a challenge. Uh, that's not our natural outflow a lot of times. We can do things, we can act, but uh, we don't always act in love. And so that's the encouragement of Paul is that we as men, we need to learn to act in love. We, uh, we can't just be actors. We've got to act in love. You know, if you look through God's Word when it comes to the husband and wife relationship, talking about staying in his 50 years, uh, you know, we are told uh, as men to love our wives. Men are told... Husbands, love your wives. You know, you look through all God's Word, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Wives are never told to love their husband. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have, they don't have to love us. They, 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 they have to love us. But why would, throughout Scripture, men be told to love their wives, but the wives would not be told to love their husbands? Because it's much more natural for women. They, they, they are lovers. I mean, that's who they are. That's how they're built. They're, they're built to connect with a son or a daughter or a child or a family member or someone in relationship. So they didn't need that command. They were told to respect their husband. That was the command they were given. But as men, we were commanded in God's Word on several occasions to love our wives. In other words, because it's not natural for us. We have to be reminded there has to be a command. And so Paul is adding this command. He's saying, along with being on your guard and along with standing firm in your faith and along with being courageous and along with being strong, guys, we have to to do everything that we do in love, in relationship to our wife and our kids and our parents and our family and our churches. Uh, we, we can be uh, 
uh, mechanical in our faith. Uh, we can be analytical in our faith. We can be mechanical in our relationships. We can be analytical in our relationships. But the command is that we would do everything we do in love. Now, as you think about your life in the last uh, couple of days, the last couple of weeks, uh, let me ask you a question. How much have you done in love? How much have you done for someone else in love? I mean, when that you, I've said something. I've said this because I, I want to be in love, act in love instead of this, or I've done this instead of that because I want to live in love. Uh, I've served here or I've given here. How much have you done out of love and in love? Not because analytically it made sense or mechanically as you went through the process it made sense. How much have you done in love? And that's the challenge for all of us is we've got to learn to love. Now, if you are new here, what we've been doing every week is we have been looking at the idea, whatever the, whatever the pillar we've been looking at, we've been looking at what failure looks like. When we talked about uh, be on your guard, we, we first of all looked at what does it look like when we fail to be on our guard. We looked at some failures. Then we also said, what does success look like? And so we're going to do that again today. And so I want to share with you uh, today kind of uh, some epic fails. Uh, and I'm going to show you one, just, just one church that failed to live in love and what it did to the church. And then we're going to talk about some sweet success. We're going to go to an Old Testament example, one of my favorite ones, uh, a guy named Boaz. And so what does it look like if we are not, as a church, walking in love? What does it look like? Let me give you a couple of thoughts. Here's number one. And we're going to be at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 to 17. That's where I'm going to start. All right. If we fail as believers and as a church to walk in love, to do everything in love, the first thing we'll understand is that when we fail at love, we are a divided church. We're a divided people. If you have ever seen a church and they're always bickering, they're always fighting, they're always voting to split, they're always at each other's throat. When you see uh, a staff that is fighting or a group of people that is fighting, guess what? When we fail to do things in love, we always lose unity. We become divided, and it, all, it falls apart. You can just pick that up, pick up reading in verse 10. Uh, here's what it says. Uh, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you would agree with one another in what you say and that there would be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. He says, if you walk in love, you're going to be united in thought. He says, but I appeal, appeal to you to stop expressing your differences. Then look at verse 11. He says, brothers and sisters, some, of, uh, uh, some from Chloe's house have informed me, he's getting the information, have informed me, in other words, there's someone embedded there in the church, uh, someone informed me uh, that there are quarrels among you. He says, what I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos, and another follows, I, I says, I follow Cephas, still another says, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided, he says. He says, is Christ divided? He says, man, if we really love each other, if we love Christ, we're going to follow Christ, and Christ alone. He says, I thank God that, uh, and he goes, and then some might even say, who is Paul? I followed Paul, and he says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you guys. He says, I thank God 
that I didn't baptize any of you uh, except a couple. He says, so that none of you might say you were baptized in my name. He says, yes, I also baptized uh, some of the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. It's always about the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So these guys were not acting in love. They had divided the church up. They were behind uh, uh, one teacher over another or one person over another. And there are times that that can happen in our churches. And if we aren't careful, it can happen in our life groups. It can happen in our small groups. It can happen in our relationships. That someone says, you know, here's who I'm following. Here's who I'm listening to. And we need to understand that as believers, if we don't walk in love, we will be a divided church. We will be a divided people. Who do we follow? We follow Christ. And that's why Paul ultimately says, I'm glad I didn't do a lot in the church at Corinth. Uh, you can follow this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. And I want you to know, if you see that happening in your life group or around the church, if someone says, man, I'm, I'm this and someone else says, I'm that, you want to step back and remember that if we are divided in who we follow, other than God's Word and other than Jesus Christ, we're probably not operating, we're not acting in love. If you jump down just a couple of chapters to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 to 5, Paul goes on and says, Brothers and sisters, I could not even address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. What is he saying? Not living in love. Uh, mere infants in Christ. What do infants do? They just want to feed me, feed me, feed me, change me, cry, 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 feed me, food, uh, change me. That's what an infant does. They're not really operating in love. They're operating in selfishness. Uh, an infant really doesn't know how to be unselfish. They just know how to be selfish. That's how they, they know how to survive. And Paul is saying, man, I wish I could have spoken to you, but you're infants in Christ. He says in verse 2, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it yet. Indeed, he says, you're still not ready. He says, why? Because you are still fleshly or worldly. Man, we know that we're not living in love when everything we do uh, is about us. Because when we truly live in love, it's about someone else. Guys, we know when we're loving our wives and when we're caring for uh, the people around us, when we are doing things for them, for their benefit, for uh, their better good and for their greater good and not simply thinking about ourselves. And so the first thing, you know a church or you know a people or you know a life group uh, or you know a home group isn't walking in love when they're divided when they're not unified. And so you look around and uh, if you, see, you hear of a church fighting or battling it out, you know they're not living in love. Here's the second thing uh, that you can see just from the Corinthian church is that when we fail at love uh, is when our knowledge puffs us up, all right? First idea is that we're not living in love when we're divided. Uh, the second thing is when knowledge puffs us up. In other words, when I gain some knowledge, then I all of a sudden think I'm smarter than everybody else in the room. And that's where we always want to be careful. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. He says, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that. We all, pass, uh, uh, we all possess knowledge. He says, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Now, let me just stop you right there. What was the apostle Paul saying? He said, man, some of you folks in Corinth, you are smart. You know the Bible, you know God's Word, you know a lot of things, but you've got to be careful because knowledge puffs up. It makes us arrogant. Guess what? He says that love builds up. 
How will I know if we are failing at doing things in love? Number one, I'll divide the room. I'll divide the people. We'll live among a divided people, a divided church. The second thing that we'll know is this, that I'll become arrogant. The more I get to know, I'll begin to look down on other people that don't know as much as I do. And Paul is clearly telling the Corinthian believers, listen, we all possess knowledge. But if all you possess is knowledge without love, it's going to puff you up. Now, as you continue to read, look at verse 2. He says, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. And what is he saying? He's saying, those that think they know something, the more you think you know, and here's what I've learned as the pastor, the more I feel like I've learned over the years as a pastor, my, year, uh, my hours of study uh, each and every week, the more I, I feel like I learn, the more I feel like I don't know. That's honest humility. But I think there are a lot of people in the faith, they, they, they feel like they have arrived. They have learned all they needed to learn. Or maybe what some people do is, is they learn a certain segment of theology. And once they learn that certain segment of theology, those five points or this or that, once they learn those things, then they're going to grade everybody else on those ideas, all right? And one, I want you to know if that is the way you are, if that's the way someone else is, they're not living in love. They have been puffed up with what little knowledge they gain, and they're not living in love. So thought number one, we can know if in my house, in my church, in my life, uh, in my relationships, if when I come in, if I'm dividing people, I'm not living in love. Secondly, if I think I'm smarter than everybody else in the room, not just that I know more, but that I'm looking to, with my knowledge, be puffed up and make other people feel small. And so here's the third idea. We know we're not living in love. Here, you ready? Is this... Um, when we act in unloving ways, even with a spiritual facade, when we, when we act in unloving ways, even with a spiritual facade, jump down to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, notice what it says. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. He says, if I give all my possessions to the poor and give over my bar body uh, to hardships that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, on the surface, all three of those things seem pretty good, don't they? How many of you would think, verse 1, hey, that's pretty impressive, man. Speak with the tongues of men and of angels. That's pretty good. But if you don't have love, you're just a clang dong. You're a, you're a horrible symbol. You're a loud banging drum. And then he says, verse 2, he says, if I, give all, uh, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Then the third point, he says, if I give all my possessions to the poor, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Man, as we think about those three things, guys, um, do a little self-analysis. Do a little self-analysis. When, uh, when you enter a room, when you enter a group of people that you're in relationship with, with, when you are in your life group, when you're in your home group, when you're talking in the hallways of the church, are you walking and talking and living in love? 
And if so, that's great. But if not, we need to identify it. And how can I identify it? Well, I can do a little self-analysis. When I enter into a group or when I speak up in a group, am I looking to divide people or unite people? When I talk about something I know, am I speaking in such a way that it puffs me up and puts others down? Or am I sharing it in a note of humility, realizing I may know a lot more and I might know a lot more than a lot of people, but I don't know everything God wants me to know. And then finally, when I act, do I act to be seen or do I act for the benefit of others out of love? Now, if, we, if those three things are symbolic or if they, if they represent how you and I live, we're not living in love. Now, the good news is, remember, every one of these pillars, what we've done is we've looked at an epic fail, and then we have looked at something that works well or how true love works. So now, jump to the Old Testament. And I want to show you a great example of what it means to act in love. It's a story of, uh, of Ruth uh, and the book of Ruth. So if you want to turn to Ruth chapter 1, uh, we'll go back there. And it, here's the essence of the story of the book of Ruth, if you don't know. Um, uh, Ruth was a Moabite. In other words, she was not an Israelite. Um, and Naomi uh, and her husband, uh, they, um, uh, there, was a, there was basically a famine in the land. Things were not going well in Bethlehem. And so Naomi and her husband, they traveled to Moab. When they travel over to Moab, they have two sons. Those two sons end, end up intermarrying Moabite women. And not only does Naomi's husband, but then her two sons die. And so it's Naomi who is an Israelite in a foreign land in Moab with two daughter-in-laws who have no home. Well, guess what that means in those days? We talked about this uh, just, uh, just Sunday night with a group of guys talking about our care for the widows. If you look in the New Testament, one of the primary purposes of deacons and servants in the body of uh, believers is that they would care for widows. And so we take, we take caring for our widows here at the church pretty seriously. Why? Because especially in those days, and not quite as much today, but especially in those days, if you were a widow, it was an agrarian society. And if you didn't have someone that could go out and plant the crops and, uh, and, and tend the fields and then harvest whatever crop you were growing, you were dying. If you didn't have somebody, you were dying. But even in God's place and even in God's space, um, God provided an opportunity that widows and orphans would be cared for. And so what would happen, you'd have some massive landowner. Uh, if Let's say this was a large field that uh, maybe had some sort of grain in it. Uh, they were told that what they were do, they were, they were to, when they harvest, they were to harvest the field, but they were to leave the corners, okay? They would leave the corners unharvested. They would actually leave some grain on the ground, okay, so that widows and orphans and people could come in and eat. So that was part of me saying, hey, I'm blessed. Sure, I could make a few more dollars or a few more cents off, uh, off the crop if I went ahead and harvested all the way to the end of the field. But he says, part of my job is to leave something over for someone else. Now, Boaz was back in Bethlehem. So Naomi and Ruth and, um, and, and, and the lady named Orpah, all right? Not Oprah, okay? That's a different person, okay? So Ruth and, uh, and Orpah were basically married to Naomi's sons. Naomi's sons died. Naomi's husbands died. So the only thing left for Naomi to do is to go back to Bethlehem. 
She hears things are better back in Bethlehem. Uh, and so she decides she's going to go back. She looks at her two daughter-in-laws and said, listen, you're not Israelites. Y'all stay here in your land in Moab. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem, and maybe I'll just pretty much die in peace. That's kind of her mindset, her thought. One of the daughter-in-law says, man, okay, they kiss each other, they go on. Ruth says, no, no, what I've seen in you is pretty important. And so Ruth follows Naomi all the way back to Bethlehem. And so as we pick it up and as we read, you'll notice what happens is um, we begin to see that Ruth gets blessed because of that decision that she makes. And so if we pick it up uh, in verse 16, here's what we see. But Ruth, listen to this, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you and turn back from you. This is Ruth talking to Naomi. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will now be my people and your God, my God. So, so Ruth makes the decision, uh, although she's a Moabite, I am going to follow you, Naomi. I don't know why, but I'm going down to Bethlehem. I'm connected with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my good God. So, so Ruth, this Moabite, someone who is considered unclean, chooses to go back to Bethlehem with a widow who has nothing, all right? So it's not like they were rolling back to the royal inheritance, all right? They, Ruth just says, man, I'm just going to go with you. I'm going to be with you. I've been connected with you. You're my mother-in-law. And so they follow each other. So let me give you a couple of thoughts. I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts right here on what it means for us to live in love. And I'm trying to push through this because I want you to spend some time today uh, reflecting on our lives. Are we strong? Are, are we courageous? Are we standing firm in our faith? And are we living in love? And so here's thought number one. We can know that we are living in love this. When love is when we show kindness, compassion, and respect for others who are simply trying to earn their way. When we are showing kindness, compassion, and respect for those who are simply trying to earn their way. When we're not looking down on people that have less than us, when we're not looking down on people as they're just trying to study the Bible, maybe we're not looking down on someone, the pastor says, turn to Matthew, and you're there in a flash, and they're trying to say, where in the world is Matthew? And you're not looking down on them. Then You're saying, man, they're trying to grow in their faith. I want to encourage that. And you say, where do you see that? If you go to uh, Ruth chapter 2, one chapter over. So Naomi, here's all the bad stuff has happened. Naomi's husband has died. Her two sons have died. Uh, one of the daughter in laws decides to stay in Moab. The other daughter-in-law, Ruth, follows her back. So here's Boaz. Here's where we're first going to meet Boaz and see what takes place. Look at it. Pick it up reading verse 5 of Ruth chapter 2. It says, Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? So here's what's happening. Naomi's pretty old. She needs to be cared for. Naomi has told Ruth, listen, go glean in the corner of the fields, go care for other fields, go get us some food. Boaz, who is the landowner, all right, he's the wealthy landowner, he owns it all, all right, he notices Ruth over there, and probably she was pretty distinctive. She clearly wasn't an Israelite. He may or may not have known at that point that she was a Moabite, but what he did is he knew she's not like the rest of the people who are gleaning in the field. And so Boaz asked a question. He asked his overseer of his harvesters, what does that young, who does that young, young woman belong to? Notice the overseer says, she is a Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. 
She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short time to rest and shelter. In other words, what's she doing? She is picking up the leftovers. And Boaz has taken notice of her. And even the over- overseer says, man, she came in here early. She's been working all day. All she's done is taken a little bit of shelter. But she's been here all day. So notice what Boaz said. He could have said, hey, she's not an Israelite. Run her out. But notice what Boaz said. So Boaz, pick it up in verse 8. He says, so Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work with me, who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. And I have, uh, I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. Now, here's what Boaz does. Instead of running her off, instead of saying, hey, listen, you're welcome to glean. Just stay in the corner of the field. He says, you follow, follow after, just like you're one of my servants. He says, matter of fact, you can go ahead and drink out of our water jars that the men go fill. Well, probably one of the things that she was struggling with, she didn't have any water. Why? Because she didn't have a man to go get her water. And so Boaz has compassion on this mobile one. Here's, here's the point for us, guys, is that if God has blessed us in seasons with resources and time and energy, we have to use that to bless others. Man, love is going to be demonstrated when we show kindness. Boaz could have kicked her out of the field. Boaz could have said, all right, that's fine. You can glean a little bit, but you have to wait until my men are done harvesting. Then my servants are done harvesting what was left over, the droppings. Then if there's anything left over, you can wait until after the Israelites later uh, are done. And then if there's anything left over you can come in and get a little bit. But Boaz doesn't do that. He is oozing with kindness. He's oozing with compassion. He's oozing with respect. He said, listen, don't glean in anybody else's field. He says, you might, you might get hurt. I've told my guys, don't lay a hand on you. Don't touch you. Not only that, go ahead and drink. And guys, so let me ask you a question. When you, when you think about people in your life, people around you, people in the church or the church, do you act in love? Are you willing to sacrifice some of your own life and your own time and your own energy for someone else's good? If so, that is acting in love. And Boaz does that right here. So here's my thought. As you journey through today, will you speak and act and talk and serve for the good of other people? If so, that's acting in kindness and compassion. Here's the next thought, man. How do we know if we're living in love uh, and, and, we're, and we're walking in love and doing everything in love? It's when we're generous. Is when we are generous to others. We've already seen some kindness and protection that he's shown. If we jump down to verse 14 to 23, it says, At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Ruth, he says, come over here. So now he's already let her work. He said, don't glean on the side of the field. You're a part of the clan. You come eat out of our own water. He says, come over here, have some bread, dip it in the wine and vinegar. 
And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all that she wanted to and even had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to the men, uh, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her, uh, reprimand her, even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles to leave for them, uh, for her to pick it up and don't rebuke her. What is he saying? Man, I am so impressed with her work ethic, her energy, uh, the fact that she came back with Naomi. Look at verse 17. It says, so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. And she threshed the barley, and she gathered, uh, and it amounted to about an ephah. And she carried it all the way back to town. And her mother-in-law saw, what is this, Naomi saw, how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave it to her, and she left over uh, that she had, she had enough to eat. Now, notice what verse 19 says. Her mother-in-law asked her, girl, <laughs> where did you glean today? She says, where did you go to work? And she says, blessed is the man who took notice in you. What, what is Naomi acknowledging? When I see what you came home with, and I see all that you had, you didn't do this on your own. Somebody else helped you. And that's the reality of what we need to understand, guys. There are people all around us that need help. There are people that need a hand, uh, uh, a hand up. They need to help up. They need us to sacrifice. They need us to provide for them. They need us to give. And, and the reality of it, we oftentimes have it within our power to do it. But too often we don't do it. And so here's the third idea. Now, we are going to, first thing is we're going to do what? We're going to be kind and compassionate. That's acting in love. Second thing we're going to do is we're going to be generous and protective. Uh, and here's the third thing we're going to do, and we're going to see it in Ruth chapter 4, if you want to jump down to chapter 4. Uh, love wins all the time when we then turn around and provide for others. When we sacrifice, we protect, we're kind and we're compassionate when we provide for others. And we pick that up in Ruth chapter 4. Now, if you know the story, there ends up being this love affair between Ruth uh, and Boaz because he is so kind to her. And so we pick it up in verse 1. Uh, pick it up in verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate, sat down there uh, just as the guardian redeemer. So Boaz uh, has already told, told Ruth, Listen, I will bring you in. I will be your kinsman redeemer. But here's the reality. In those days, uh, those who were closest of kin got first opportunity to call someone in. So Boaz goes down to the city gate. And he says, I'm going to do this thing legally. If I'm going to bring in Ruth into my house, I need to make sure that there's not another kinsman redeemer. There's not some other redeemer that's going to step in. And Boaz that realizes, I don't think there is, but let me go ahead and, and go down to the city gate. And so here's kind of the idea. If you haven't read this book, it's just a couple of chapters. I would encourage you to read, uh, read Ruth. It says, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate, sat down there just as the guardian redeemer. And uh, he, had mentioned, uh, uh, he had mentioned along the way, Boaz uh, said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said to them, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the, to the guardian redeemer, that's who was legally, uh, legally first in line to redeem Ruth. He said, Sit down here. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took the ten elders in the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman or the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our relative uh, Elimelech. He says, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it. Man, pretty high integrity. 
suggests that you buy it in the presence of all these that are seated here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if not, he says, please tell me so I will simply know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and then I am next in line. In other words, he says, I'm not, I'm not going to cheat the system. He says, you're first in line. If you want to buy the land, you buy the land. He says, if not, I'm next in line, and I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, uh, on the day that you buy the land uh, from Naomi, you also need to understand that you, re- you acquire Ruth the Moabite. And what was he saying? He says, listen, uh, it's one thing if you just want to be in real estate development, but here's what you need to understand. Along with the real estate comes this Moabite woman. And with a Moabite woman, she's got no man. You're going to have to feed her. You're going to have to protect her. You're going to have to care for her. And by the way, you know, Naomi, the only person that's been feeding Naomi right now is Ruth. And so, dude, it's a piece of land, but there's other stuff that is there, all right? And so, yeah, exactly. There's always a catch. (laughs) There's always a catch. And so notice what happened. He says, on the day you buy it, uh, you have to understand. Look at this, verse uh, verse 6. At this, the guardian redeemer says, Ah, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it for yourself, for I cannot do it. All right? Notice what he says. He says, I probably could have done the land, but you throw in the two women, I'm out. All right? So notice, as you just roll down, Boaz steps in, and I encourage you to read it, buys the property, and guess what? With the property comes some baggage, all right? It comes two widows, one who can't even care for himself, herself, one who works hard just to provide enough for herself and her mother-in-law. Now, if you know the end of the story, Because Boaz acted in love. Anybody know what happened? Ruth and Boaz got married. Okay? After they got married, so now you have a Moabite in the line of Jesus' ancestry. Then they had a child. Anybody know who that child's name was? Obed. Anybody know who Obed was? David's grandfather, the grandfather of David. All because what? Boaz was willing to act in love. Let me ask you a question. You think when when Boaz looked at her that first time, that's kind of a neat little love story and a caring story. You think Boaz looked out and said, there's a Moabite who's going to end up in the line and lineage of the Savior of the world. No. He just looked and said, there's someone that needs a hand up, and I have the ability to give it to them. And so my prayer, guys, as we journey through the end of this, is that you and I, along with being strong, along with standing firm in our faith, along with being courageous, along with... um, uh, being, uh, uh, being on our guard, that we would also do everything in love. And so here's how I want to close in this, uh, in this passage. I, I really would love for you all to spend a little time with the guys there at your desk uh, and at your table and, and just say, guys, you know, pray for me. 
I need to act more in love towards my kids. I need to act more in love towards uh, my family, my wife. I need to act more in love uh, at church. I need to do more. Uh, and, and so this is where you just get honest and confess. You've got about five minutes. And then ask the guys around you to pray for you. Because my guess is most of us are a lot better at being on our guard and being courageous and being strong than we are acting in love. I'm sure that's the way it is for you because I'm pretty sure it's that way for me. So I want to invite you to just turn your heads there as we close this five pillars of biblical manhood and just ask guys, be honest with guys. One thing, don't. here's what we don't want in a time like this. Please don't, unless you're all retired and you got no place to go, don't have one guy spend 15 minutes uh, so no one else gets to anything. All right? God bless you guys. Y'all have a good one.